Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, Dr. Rob Linstead joins James Collins to examine the power of the cross, and Pastor Larry has a special Easter devotion for us all. God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. Those words have been the focus of this ministry for the past 89 years. As we celebrate the faithfulness of the Lord, we want to encourage you to stand with us as we begin another year of ministry. Please know that your financial support is how we're able to produce these radio programs, print the books, and produce the DVDs. Please give today. Call 1-800-652-1144. Or you can give securely online, swrc.com. Thank you for helping us bring clarity to the chaos. So important as we prepare for Easter to take time and really focus on the sacrifice Jesus made for you and me. To help us do that, Dr. Rob Lindstedt is back, continuing his look at the power of the cross. 2,000 years ago, the cross meant death. During the time of Jesus, the cross was an instrument of execution that resulted in death by the most torturous and painful of ways. In crucifixion, a person was either tied or nailed to a wooden cross and left to hang until dead. Death would be slow and excruciatingly painful. In fact, the word excruciating literally means out of the cross. However, because of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, the meaning of the cross today is completely different. Joining me again on the Watchman on the Wall to discuss the importance of the cross is Dr. Robert Linstead. Dr. Linstead is the executive director of Sunrise Christian Academy in Wichita, Kansas. He is a well-known Bible scholar, prophecy expert, and author, and today we're going to continue to talk about his book, The Power of the Cross. Dr. Linstead, welcome back. Thanks for joining me again today. My pleasure, James, to be with you guys. Dr. Linstead, we spoke last time about the seven sayings from the cross and their significance. The fourth saying of the Lord Jesus Christ from the cross is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Dr. Lynn said, wasn't that one of the most important moments in all of history? It sure was. To be honest, we could probably spend the whole program just on this one, but think about the fact that when this is documented in the Scriptures, it says the sixth hour. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, the Jewish day starts at 6 a.m., and so that would mean noon. Right. And so it says there's darkness for the next three hours. And what's incredible, the brightest time of the day became darkest night. Mm-hmm. I think it was God calling attention to the fact that there was a sin bearer. And I've had people say, well, you know, the planets lined up a certain way or it was an eclipse. No, 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 nothing lined up other than the scripture. It wasn't an eclipse because an eclipse is not total dark. But I like what it says in Matthew, and then in Luke it says again, there was darkness over all the earth. James, I think that darkness is so incredible. Here's why I say that. I don't think there was a darkness like that from Genesis chapter 1, when God moved in the darkness and divided the day and the night. I don't know if you've ever been in total darkness. I've been in a cave and and the lights go out, and you don't have a flashlight, and you feel ridiculous because it's so dark, it's almost frightening. I think this darkness was that kind of darkness. Yes. 
the brightest time. Now it's the darkest moment. Why? Because you see, God, a holy God, was dealing with my sin. That's how horrible my sin was. He's a God of glory. He's a God of light. And in that total darkness, that's when he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus only referred to his Father one time as God. And that one time is here on the cross at this saying. And I think it's because this inseparable unity that God the Father and God the Son had from the beginning of ever, from eternity past, was broken for the first time because my sin was that horrible to a holy God. And so in the darkness, total darkness, incredible darkness, he dealt with my sin. So you take darkness before we have the creation story in Genesis 1. There's this horrible darkness. God moves. God creates. God makes it light and life. You come to the cross, a scary darkness. You know what? This darkness is so incredible that when the veil rent, when the rocks split, when people saw and felt this darkness, they said, this was a righteous man. And then, James, I can't have a go forward a little bit because, you see, there's another time that the Scripture records there's going to be a horrible darkness. Mm -hmm. The horrible darkness is really going to be when Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation, it will call the revelation of Jesus Christ. Matthew, again, chapter 25, it talks about the fact that at the end of the tribulation, when Christ comes back, he comes back with power and might and glory. And how it describes it is just amazing, because it says this, Matthew 24 says this, The sun shall be darkened, the moon shall not give its light, the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man. And it comes back with clouds, power, and great glory. So it's like God saying, okay, the last time you saw him was on the cross, there was darkness and death. And the next time the world's going to see him, he's going to come back, and that darkness... Can you imagine him coming in that total dark environment? Mm. And he comes, and he's a bright light of the glory of God. He comes and says, oh, the brightness of his coming, he actually destroys the Antichrist. And so, to me, this saying of Christ, right in the middle of these seven sayings, is so important, because this is the very moment when he is dealing with my sin, and there on the cross, he would make it possible for me to have eternal life through his death. Praise God. The fifth saying from the cross is found in John 19, verse 28. There the Lord Jesus Christ said, I thirst. And you said about that last time, this is the very one who can send a flood or cause a drought, the one who made every brook and river, yet he cries, I thirst. And that was very profound. Would you elaborate a little more on that verse? What is interesting to me is that in Psalm 69, verse 21, the Bible predicted that he would come and he would satisfy this, he would fulfill it, in a wonderful way. But the thing that I like is he would go to those, like the woman at the well, we mentioned her before, and there he would satisfy her. He would promise her living water, not just water, but living water. In John 7, what he does is so incredible because he stood and he cried, said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. You know, that was the last day, it was the great day of the feast that the Jews celebrated every year. And Christ was there. What he said, he openly proclaimed that he was the Messiah. Mm -hmm. He said, I'm the one 
that can give you bread in the wilderness. I'm the one who gives you water to drink in the wilderness. Now I'm here. I'm going to give you water to drink again. If you thirst, come to me. Isaiah 55, it talked about, you know, everyone that thirsts. You know what I see today, James? I see thousands of people thirsting because they got all the water of the world, the pleasure of the world, the luxuries of the world, the money of the world, all those things they can't satisfy. Here's a woman in John 4 came to Jesus, and she must have been a woman of pleasure because she she had a riotous life, but none of it satisfied. Right. And that's what I'm seeing as I look around. I see people who are successful by their education. They're successful by their business. They're successful by their houses and their cars and boats. You know what? That's okay. God's not jealous of those things. God created the material that made those things. But have you ever seen the fact that there's a spiritual thirst that every person has? And this woman at the well, she admitted it. I think she admitted it because no one was around to hear that with all she'd done, she was still thirsty. Mm-hmm. And at the university, I would meet people, and they were so successful. They were so bright. They did incredible research projects. Wow. I meet athletes, and they're so gifted. They can jump, and they can dunk, and they can dribble, and they can, they can run fast, and all these things. But the trouble is, when the day is over, do they have an urge for something that's greater than that? And the answer is yes. And what it is, they need spiritual water, water that can satisfy for eternity. The world is built on substitutions. <laughs> See, the devil, he wants to give you some little perks along the way. He wants to give you some, some little drinks of water, of pleasure. Nothing wrong with drinking water. But if you don't have the spiritual living water, then all you have is something for this life and not for eternity. The sixth saying of Christ from the cross is, it is finished. Tell us about that statement. This is one of my favorite ones, because in the original language, the phrase, it is finished, it's just one word. One word. Mm-hmm. It's almost the idea that an athlete would have when he crosses the finish line. When he crosses that line, he yells, victory. I think many victims on the cross probably said things. Most of the time, they were cursing. Who can imagine a person on the cross saying, I win? But Jesus did. Why? Because it was a victory. It was a complete victory. See, he didn't say, I'm finished. If he would have said, I'm finished, people would have understood. He's talking about physical sufferings. He's talking about his physical life. But what he talked about, he said, it is finished. What, what, what was finished? What was finished was the work that he came to do. And the work that he came to do was to save me. I'm saved today not because I do something good, not because I've done something good, not because someday I might do something good, I'm saved because Jesus on the cross did something not just good, but complete. He finished it. It's victory. It's total victory. I'm not trying to earn part of my salvation. Jesus paid it all. It's finished. It would be like going to a master picture that a well-known artist did. I say, you know, I think I'll just add a a little tree here in the background of this (laughs) picture. And you'd say, no, don't don't do that. Don't do that, no. Yeah, you'd say, you're going to ruin it. See, I can't add to what Jesus has done. He said, it is finished. There, his sufferings were done. The judgment for sin was done. There's no more sacrifices of animal needed. Everything for our salvation was completed there. And so I can be righteous in Christ when I accept, when I go to God the Father and say, 
God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve hell. But I also admit that Jesus died for me, and he didn't have to die. He had no sin, but he died for my sins. He became my substitute. And there I say, I accept the finished work of Jesus Christ as the total victory for my sin. That's why I love that saying. It's finished. The seventh and final saying from the cross is when Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. First of all, it's interesting that there would be seven sayings, because I think the fact that seven is such a number of completion. Right. The thing that I love about it is that he gave up the ghost. No one took it from him. He gave it up. And when he was down the centurion, he makes that observation, truly this was a, a righteous man. But to me, what I like is it showed that, that all the time he was working in complete cooperation with God the Father. Everything he did before the cross, everything he did as he spoke to people, he'd say, I and the Father are one. The great priestly prayer in John 17, he shows the unity between him and God the Father. And so now, on the cross, when all this is done, you know what it says? It says this, I commit myself to God. He finished the work, he committed himself to God, and he met with God's approval, and here's why I know that. You wouldn't commit to God something that wasn't godly. And Christ knew that on the cross, when he presented himself in the finished work of the cross, he completed the work, then he presented it to the Father, and he knew that the Father would approve of it, and the proof of his resurrection. If God did not approve of the death of Christ, then God would have never raised him from the dead. God had a part in the resurrection. Jesus had a part in the resurrection. And the Spirit of God had a part in the resurrection. The whole Trinity agreed in unison that this work done on the cross by Jesus was perfect, complete, and enough to save a sinner like me. When the Lord Jesus Christ died, he was taken from the cross and buried in a tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea. And you write in the book, The Power of the Cross, he was beaten, he was disfigured, he was nailed to a cross, he was gored with a spear, and he was dead. It looked like it was the end of Christianity. Thank God it was only the beginning. Dr. Lynn said, tell us about the significance of the resurrection. Well, I think without the resurrection, we don't have salvation. Mm -hmm. Because resurrection was the great stamp of approval. We find it and I'm going to say in several ways. One is, remember, Jesus, when he walked with his disciples, he said to them, in so many days I'm going to be in Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is going to be given to the priests and to the religious people, and they're going to mock him and scourge him and kill him, and he will rise again. I look at the story that he taught concerning Jonah, and he said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, the Son of Man will come forth alive again. And then we go to First Corinthians, and we see that, again, he states, here's the definition of the gospel, that he died according to the Scripture, he was buried according to the Scripture, and he rose again according to the Scripture. Everything, every minute detail, was in the aspect of fulfilling every detail of God's plan for my salvation. And so he introduces himself in Revelation chapter 1 to John. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the one that was dead, and now I'm alive. And he has the power of life and death. You see, the devil doesn't have that power. Jesus has the power of resurrection. Jesus has the power of life. This is the great triumph 
over the devil because the devil doesn't have that power. The devil and the Antichrist are going to fake it. In the middle of tribulation, they're going to try to give life to the image of the beast. They're going to fake it. They're going to fake death and try to fake resurrection. Jesus didn't fake it. The enemies of Jesus could not deny that what was done was an incredible, mighty miracle that only God can do. No world religion can touch your resurrection. Well, Dr. Linstead, you've been doing a tremendous job over the last couple of programs sharing the gospel. And there may be someone listening today who is not a believer in Jesus Christ. Would you tell that person how they can receive Christ? James, what a pleasure that would be. Because I think, first of all, is to acknowledge I'm not up to God's standard. The Bible says all have sinned, and, and I know that I'm a sinner. I know my thoughts. I know my deeds. I know my motives. I'm a sinner. I'm short of the standard of a holy God. And if God allowed me to go to heaven without sins forgiven and blotted out, I would ruin heaven. I would bring disease to heaven. I'd bring death to heaven. I'd bring all the curses that we have on the earth. And so I think the first thing is acknowledge I'm a sinner. I'm short of the holy standard of God. Number two, I think is to acknowledge that Jesus Christ on the cross paid a debt that I could never pay. The only way I can be righteous is for him to be my substitute. Sometimes we don't like a substitute to come in when we're playing baseball. Maybe we don't like a substitute to come in when we're going to do something special. But let me tell you that when the sin test comes and God looks at whether I'm a sinner or not, you know what? I'm glad to have a substitute. I'm going to call in Jesus. I'm going to admit that what Jesus did on the cross is something I couldn't do for myself. My righteousness is in Christ. I think the final thing is to say, Lord Jesus, I take you as payment for my sin. I accept the finished work on the cross as the work that satisfied a holy God and could save a sinful man. Lord Jesus, I take you as my Savior and my substitute. And pray that in Jesus' name. And I think that's when a person passes from death into life. In his powerful book, The Power of the Cross, Dr. Rob Linstead pours through the Word of God and teaches the details of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What really happened at the trial of Jesus? Did the crucifixion make Jesus a victim or a victor? What was the significance of the seven sayings from the cross? Why is the resurrection completely unique to Christianity? Dr. Rob Linstead answers these questions and much, much more in The Power of the Cross. This book is an excellent resource for you, your family, and your church. Order The Power of the Cross today. Call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. As we prepare our hearts for Resurrection Sunday this weekend, our host, Pastor Larry Spargimino, has some special thoughts from God's Word that he wanted to share. We are approaching Resurrection Sunday. It is a day when we celebrate the victory of life over death. This is the season of resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've all had our experiences with death. We've all lost loved ones, the elderly die, but also those in infancy, as well as young men and young women. Death is no respecter of persons. But the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ gives a new and dramatically personal perspective on death 
death will not have the last word. The death of a parent or grandparent can be very upsetting to little children. I can remember when I was about four or five, my little doggy died cold and lifeless. It was very upsetting to me. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is good news. Christ is the first fruits of those who have died. The resurrected Christ is proof that there will be a great harvest of people, Christian saints, who will live eternally with the Lord and his people in the next life. As a pastor, that is good news for me to share in my ministry. And as a mere mortal, it is also good news for me personally. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul gives an extended treatment of resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of believers. In verse 54, the apostle writes, So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. The resurrection of Christ was one of the central features of apostolic preaching in the book of Acts. In Acts 1, verse 8, the Bible gives us the commission of Jesus Christ, and it says, And ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Jesus was born to die, but death was not the end for him. Yes, as Peter said in Acts 2.23, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. But Peter had much more to say. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. It was impossible that Christ would remain in the grave. That was the message of the early church. In Acts 3.15 we read, And killed the prince of life whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And because of that fact, we can all have hope. Jesus said, Because I live, ye shall live also. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means. Eternal life, a life that begins in this life and continues forever and ever, that's what eternity is, a forever existence. But how do you define eternity? There are many definitions that are given for eternity. Sometimes it is defined as infinite or unending time. Sometimes it is defined as timelessness, a time in which time has no meaning. A long time ago, I heard an illustration that I think gives us at least a workable description of eternity. Imagine a large bird that comes once every million years to sharpen its beak on the top of Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world, some 29,000 plus feet tall. Once every million years, this bird comes by and sharpens its beak. Every time the bird comes by to sharpen its beak, the mountain is worn down just a little bit. Another million years go by, and then the bird comes back to sharpen its beak. Every million years, this bird comes back. The bird sharpens its beak by rubbing it against the highest point on Mount Everest. By the time this bird has succeeded in wearing down Mount Everest to a little pile of dirt, eternity has not even begun. That's how big eternity is. So, what does that mean for you? What does it mean for me and for every person, no matter where they are and where they live? It means that the most important thing a person can do in this life is preparing for the next life. Are you prepared for the next life? Just think of Olympic athletes. They prepare for the Olympics for years and years. They get up early every morning. They eat healthy food. 
They do special exercises that will help them to perform well in their sport. They spend years in preparation for one Olympic event. Now, if Olympians prepare so hard, shouldn't we prepare for eternity? When the Bible talks about eternal life for the Christian, it's talking about endless time and a completely new kind of existence. The resurrection of Jesus Christ secured for all those who have trusted him for salvation, a new kind of existence, an existence that will never end. Did you know that no one really dies and goes out of existence? The righteous and the unrighteous will be resurrected. It's not just the saints who are resurrected. Now, you might ask, Pastor Larry, where do you find that in the Bible? I want to read from John 5, 28 and 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. Notice it says, all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Everyone is going to spend eternity somewhere. Eternity is a big word, so let me ask you, where will you spend eternity? Have you come to Christ in faith, confessing your sins and putting your faith in him? So much depends on your decision. Jesus Christ made it possible for you to spend eternity in heaven with him, to have complete joy, complete victory, to live an existence that's above all of the suffering and pain and sickness that we face in this life. Your decision is the deciding factor. If you've not made this decision, you can do so right now. This can be the best Resurrection Sunday you have ever had. Some people call it Easter Sunday. I like to call it Resurrection Sunday. Whatever you call it, you can take part in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. Jesus did say, for what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? I'm 80 years old, and I can tell you this world does not satisfy. Millions of people have tried to find satisfaction in the world. It won't happen. Some people are trying to find satisfaction in the things of the world and in this life. I can tell you, that's like trying to get honey out of a rock. It won't happen. The Bible says, And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Accepting Jesus Christ is the will of God. God has told us so. That's why the Father sent his Son, to provide forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. Jesus is alive, and furthermore, he's coming again. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. The Power of the Cross by Dr. Rob Linstead pours through the Word of God and teaches the details of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Order your copy of The Power of the Cross when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can always order online, swrc.com. All of us here at Watchmen on the Wall hope you and your family have a wonderful weekend worshiping and praising 
the risen Savior. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and has been supported for 89 years by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.